This is the Magic Convention Guide podcast. This episode brought to you by irishmagicnews.com talks with Pat Fallon about his magical career and his award today at the Merlin Award from the International Magician Society. We thank irishmagicnews.com for allowing us to use these interviews and recommend that you head over there for all the latest Irish magic news. Hi, this is Pat Fallon, and you're listening to a conversation with me on irishmagicnews.com. Well, Pat, it's very good to have you here. I've been looking forward to this interview for quite some time. Um, I suppose we should start with how you got interested in magic, but unlike a lot of us who got interested in magic at quite an early age, you came to magic quite late in life. Yeah, I normally start my lectures when I lecture for magicians by saying that, um, like most little boys, I became interested in magic when I got a magic set for my birthday. But unlike most little boys, I was 30 years of age at the time. <laughs> now, I actually became interested when I saw Dan O'Donoghue, a very fine professional magician here in Ireland, um, performing Svengali routines uh, around Christmas time. And I was absolutely blown away by this fantastic trick and went bought one, went home and couldn't really get to grips with it at all. Um, and then discovered Pat Page's Big Book of Magic. And that really is what opened the door to me to um, why I became so fascinated and interested and wanted to make magic my career. And were you exposed to magic as a kid? Or was, was being 30 years of age and seeing Dan O'Donoghue, Demis van Gallydeck, was that your first experience of magic? Or would you have been aware of magic or seen shows in your childhood? I was very aware of magic. I saw a magician in my school when I was quite young. I have no idea who it was. It could have been Albert Labar, but that's just a wild guess. Uh, on TV at the time, of course, David Nixon was the TV magician, and I loved David Nixon, and I loved magic, but never had any thoughts about doing it as a career. I mean, never even had thoughts about doing tricks myself. Um, and then I went off and followed a different career. That's, uh, you know, went into the racing business. And you were in hotel management and you, you, you've had a gauntlet of jobs, really. Well, how long have you got? I mean, I could start. I left school when I was 13 and a half because I wanted to become an apprentice jockey. And I remember my mother cried because I was moving 20 miles down the road. It was like, God, this is just unbelievable. I was going to be so far away. I mean, nowadays, 20 miles is a hop. But, um, yeah, that's what I, I pursued for the first um, 10, 11 years of my working life was, uh, was the flat racing business. And I then moved into the hotel business, which then took me into private service with the, the wonderful Guinness family, the people who made that great brew that goes all over the world. I never touch it. You never touch it, no. <laughs> no Irish people do. You know. It's just for export only. And um, it was actually when working with them, I had a lot of spare time, and that's when I saw Dan O'Donoghue, and that's when I became interested in magic, and uh, because I had time on my hands to read books. And, and, and from seeing Dan to getting Papage's big book of magic, you were still working with the Guinness family at that stage? I was, yeah. yeah. And what the, the transition of being a hobby magician and getting into societies and then deciding to make it a livelihood. <clears throat> did you, like many of us, do it part-time for a while? Were you taking gigs while you were still working? Or did you just say, right, I'm, I'm doing it full-time? Well, like most things in my life, they happened, I suppose, by accident. And uh, I started off doing a few charity shows, which is always the best way to start and not get paid. And I, one of those charity shows, I met Mick Foster and Tommy Allen, which are uh, Foster and Allen, are a very famous um, uh, I suppose, Mus musical, musical duo. duo. Yeah. 
um, doing Irish music. And uh, they brought me on a, on a short tour. And I became absolutely and utterly besotted by this whole show business thing because, I mean, I started my professional career in theatres, which is um, which is a lovely way to start. It's a very rare way to start, I would imagine. It is, and then I had to backpedal. And, and so I started my career in reverse. I started as a stage magician doing adult shows and then went back to basics and started learning uh, children's magic. And I would always advocate that if you want a really good grounding in magic, start with kids' magic because the kids won't take any sort of rubbish and they're very difficult nowadays uh, to entertain children. So it gives you good grounding in, in magic and in control, which is, again, a very important thing. And when you were working with um, Foster and Alan, was that you were full-time at that stage? No, no, I was still working with uh, with the Guinnesses and, um, because it wasn't a huge, it was just a shortish tour and there wasn't a whole lot else out there. Uh, what happened then was I decided to move back to Dublin and I rented a house in Dublin. I put an ad on a notice board in a shopping centre. Got a call the next day from a guy who had a restaurant who wanted me to do children's shows in his restaurant on a Sunday. So I went to visit him, uh, looked at his restaurant, it was totally unsuitable for doing shows, and I suggested to him that he would do close-up magic on a Sunday instead. Now, my only experience of close-up magic at that point was I'd read Mark Leverage's book, which is The Art of Hopping Tables. Mm -hmm. And I was able to speak quite confidently on what close-up magic was all about and how it would work in his restaurant. Uh, that was on a Thursday. I went home, reread Mark's book on the Friday, practiced a few close-up tricks and went to work on the Sunday. I suppose, looking back on it, I probably wasn't brilliant but the one thing that stands me is that most of the routines I began with are still very much a part of my working repertoire now. So there wasn't fundamentally anything wrong with the magic. Just probably my presentation wouldn't be as, as sharp as it is nowadays. And it's fair to say that certainly in Ireland you were the one who pioneered close-up magic as as we know it as a corporate entertainment or as a you know a, a table hopping entertainment or a drinks reception entertainment. You were the one who really pushed it with the agents and made them see the value of it. Yeah, and again, that was one of those fortunate things. I went to um, to a nightclub one night and was sort of very much on my own there. Some guy sat down beside me and during a brief conversation, he asked me what I did and I showed him some close-up magic and a little later he brought some friends to see it and then a few minutes later some more people come over to see it and before I knew where I was I was surrounded by 20-25 people clamouring to see what I was doing and so much so that the, the doormen in the nightclub thought there was a row and came bursting in to find out what was going on and ended up entertaining them as well so the nightclub then employed me to go and work and it was while I was there I met other people in show business because it was a nightclub where a lot of show business people went which led me to a lady called Carol Hanna, who was a very prominent agent at the time, who thought it was the best thing she'd ever seen. And I started working for Carol, uh, doing corporate events and stuff like that. And the great thing about it was the very first event I ever did for it was actually a stand-up show. And as soon as the show was over, the, the people said, we want to book you again for this. And it's always been my policy that something comes through an agent, go back to an agent. And I said, well, you'll have to ring the agent about it, which was the best recommendation because my very first show for this woman, um, they wanted to rebook. Mm. And, uh, you know, I've never looked back since in that respect. It's probably also fair to say you were the only one at that stage then doing Close Up Magic as we know it through Carol. Yeah, 
Um, so yeah. you, you kind of had the whole market to yourself, really. I mean, you pioneered the market to begin with, but and, I mean, it must have been an awful, a, a huge pleasure within yourself to know that you had this all to yourself and no one even knew it existed at this time. Well, it was, and I mean, <coughs> I, was, I was slightly worried that, um, you know, what would happen when there would be a, you know, suddenly people would realise that there was a marketplace to do close-up magic. Because I don't think anybody really, really realised that. They were all doing... Um, those magicians that were working were just doing really kid shows. There was very little stand-up work going around. Um, so, I did, you know, I was a little concerned. But then I realised some years later when I started actually booking out magicians to do events myself uh, through Carol because she would say to me, well, it's a very big event. And I said, well, I need another magician. And I got one. Uh, Paul Beatty was one of my early uh, people and Paul still works uh, with me and for me at times. Um, and in its heyday, around the the mid nineties, um, I booked out up to fourteen magicians on huge corporate events. Unfortunately, those days have gone again. Um, but that was the the heyday of it. And I was amazed to think that I remember counting up one day. I knew there were twenty magicians out working at Christmas in Dublin, um, in the space of about six or seven years, from no magicians working. Which was great. Which is a huge compliment to yourself, it must be said as well. Well, I... I a huge I'm, legacy. I mean, anybody who's working nowadays, and my generation of people, I mean, I'm in my early 30s, and there's guys out there from 25 to 35 who stand on your shoulders, although some of them may not realise it. Well, I, thank you for the compliment. I mean, I don't regard myself as... Well, I suppose, in a sense, a pioneer is, is a very strong word. But I, I was the guy who got out there and did it and continued to do it and got people interested in doing it. And it wasn't easy. I mean, I'm always amazed now when the phone rings, someone says, oh, we're looking for a table-hop magician or a close-up magician. They didn't know what it was. You know, people, you had to explain to them what would happen and how you would deal with it and how you would do this because they had no um, precedent, so they couldn't identify with it. Now, of course, any agent and, and most people in, in any sort of business who run events are very familiar with what close-up magic is um, and they, they actually ring you and ask you for it. I think, unfortunately, they don't realise what good close-up magic is in the context of a corporate event. It can be a bit of a problem, all right. Um, and let's be honest that if you do a magic trick and fool people, um, you know, that's part of it. But there's far more to it than that, as you know yourself, being also a very good close-up magician, that there has to be the entertainment value and you have to have the control, you have to be able to entertain a complete group of people at a table um, I get very annoyed if for some reason one or two people don't um, pay full attention to what I'm doing because I feel I failed in my job because I think that when you arrive at a table to entertain you have to entertain everybody and if you fail to do that um, I think you failed in your job now sometimes it happens that people are just in engrossed in conversation and, uh, and totally ignore you um, not very often but it has happened on occasions I want to talk to you a little bit about your image. Um, when I first met you, I suppose I was 17 or 18. Um, at that stage, you were with Tanya and you had the grey ponytail uh, and you looked the absolute picture-perfect picture of a classical magician. When did you decide to grow your hair? How did all that come around? For those who, who don't know Pat, to see Pat is uh, immaculately dressed all the time and sports a very fine grey ponytail, which is his trademark. And he's known and recognised on every gig he goes to because of the hair. So how did that come about? And was it a conscious decision on your behalf? It was a conscious decision on someone else's behalf. I was very fortunate back in, in the very late 80s to meet a young man called Paul Welch, who was at the time looking after bands and band management. 
and we had a meeting one day because he was fascinated with this whole thing about magic and a magician and um, he said to me you need an image and um, you know he said to you, you'd have to find an image and I think you should grow your hair now long hair had gone out of fashion I mean we've moved on from the the rock bands of the 70s and the 80s and um, you know and I wasn't really sure about this so I started to grow my hair anyway and I didn't really like it and I went and had to cut off and he got really annoyed at me and said look you need something that makes you stand out above everybody else and I think if you have because of the colour of your hair you have a nice ponytail with a ribbon in it and he reminded me of a guy called PJ Proby and the funny thing was I remember seeing PJ Proby who was a great Britain uh, an English singer in, in the UK in the 60s with long hair and a huge big Alice bow in it and a big fluffy shirt and I remember thinking at the time God I'd love to be like that you know I'd love to have that kind of image and now I had the opportunity to actually do this so I did and I went back and grew my hair again always wear a black ribbon in it and for stage work I always wear a big bow and it has become my trademark and in the early days with Carol Hannah people say um, we're looking for this magician with the, the ponytail and uh, they never had to remember my name and in fact nowadays still people don't remember your name but they actually know who I am well I've been out socially with you and even in, in a shop going shopping or walking through town one day and although people may not know who you are or what you do they certainly know you're something the, yeah, there is that thing about it and I get increasingly um, I smile at times because only last week um, a guy said to me uh, I was working on an event he said I saw you last week in a shopping centre and I said what was I doing and he said you were just walking through and I thought well why should somebody take any interest in me and it is because of the image and it's, it's a lasting image that people see and they remember you and I said they don't know what you are or what you do but they, they know you, you, you obviously do something that's what people say to me you know you do something but it's an immediate conversation starter and attention getter which is obviously what our business is all about indeed and I've, I've had the ponytail now since um, the early 90s which is um, what are we looking at now almost 20 years and I, people often stop me in the street and say, I saw you at a show, you know, in 1996 or 95. And it's not because they remember my face particularly, they, they see the overall package and that's what reminds them. Um, I mean, I have changed, I've got older, obviously, and I don't quite have as much hair in the front as I used to have. Um, but the back is still hanging on. I want to um, touch a little bit on, on your career taking off and the, the, the high points of your career, I suppose, was when you met Tanya and you started working together and the, the impetus she brought into your business. Um, and also that coincided with a, an economical time that business in general and the economy world over was starting to fly. And those two amalgamations together really brought you huge success. Yeah, well, timing is everything, as they say. And at that particular time, I've been working with part-time assistants, some very good girls and very not-so-good girls. Um, I met Tanya on a fashion launch, uh, uh, which was for Pepe Clothing. And she was dancing and had choreographed some stuff, and I was producing colourful doves. Pepe had gone from the normal blue into coloured sort of um, clothing. And a few months later, I met her on a TV programme. And Paul Welch, who was... Um, the guy who was instrumental in my hair went over to Tanya and said what are you doing for the weekend and um, she wasn't sure whether he was asking her out on a date but she decided to say well it depends on what you want and uh, he said well Pat's looking for an assistant if you're interested 
and that's how we started. And at that particular time, I just started working with comedian Brendan Grace, who was touring a lot around the country. So the timing was perfect on that. When I met Tanya, I was getting into a really busy phase and I needed a permanent girl and she was the one. Um, and obviously then, of course, the relationship went from a working relationship into um, a real relationship. Which is always handy when you're on the road. Uh, brilliant, yeah. You only have to book one hotel room. And um, But uh, we had a very good working relationship and a good relationship for 15 years. Sadly, um, about two years ago, um, that disintegrated. Um, but she was brilliant and very well respected, of course, within the business as an assistant. Um, and for many, she was one of the best assistants around. And from the heights of that busy times, and I mean, I know we've talked privately, I mean, you were working a lot and a lot more than people thought you were working. Um, you know, a lot as well. Doing a lot of corporate stuff, doing a lot of close-up stuff and doing a lot of theatre stuff that were all private engagements for the most part that a lot of people wouldn't have known about. So you went from those dizzy heights to, you know, your, your marriage breakup and also losing an assistant at the same time. Um, I don't want to dwell too much on this, but I know it did. It really knocked you for for a year or two. Well, yeah, it, it took me a long time to to get to grips with it, and you know, just a to come to terms with it, and, and b where was I going to go from here? And that hasn't been easy because you know when you've worked with one of the best assistants around, and I know, okay, I can be sorry prejudiced about this because you know she was brilliant, um, but not just my opinion, but opinion. Well, I mean, I, I know that's the opinion of a lot of eminent magicians in the UK and, and people who know their magic and are very critical and their opinions will be well respected. I've heard people talk privately without you in the conversation, without you beside me, saying what a great box jumper she was and what existence she was. So, you know, that, that opinion isn't through rose-tinted glasses. That's a, yeah, well, I, that's a it. widespread opinion. Yeah, yeah, it is. And the other thing about her, she was very interested in magic itself mm. and had a great understanding of magic and in fact there were times when she could talk down most magicians and uh, when it came to discussion on, on magical principles or whatever she because she was very well read in fact um you know we used to fight over the magic magazines when they came in the door mm. uh, who'd get to read it first but uh, trying to replace somebody like that has not been easy and I've had a few nice girls came and did a bit of work for me, and I'm lucky at the moment to have two very good girls who I can call upon. Um, the marketplace at the moment where I am doesn't lend itself to having a full-time assistant again, so I am back to slightly um, using girls when I need them and having them available when I need them, which isn't easy, so you end up, that's why you have two, because you can juggle a little bit. But it's getting back there, and um, my own head is straight again, and I'm, I'm, I'm hungry and eager uh, to get back on the road and get out and do things. Well, we, um, you know, anybody listening to this who doesn't know myself or Pat, we are we are very good friends and we talk a lot on the phone. Um, we're almost like the husband and wife does to some, <laughs> to some degree. But um, I mean, I've seen it change in the last even in the last three or four months. You've you've really got your buzz back about the business, and I think you definitely have turned a corner. And things are starting to happen again a little bit for you. Yeah, um, and I have to say I'm, I'm grateful to my friends in the business. I have a lot of friends in the business and. Uh, you know, the support of, of the guys at home here, but also people like Paul Daniels and a lot of, um, you know, working magicians that I know in the UK who have been very supportive. Um, and that's what it's all about, is having friends at the right time when you need them. I'm going to Australia very soon to lecture at the convention and perform over there. 
and I'm really looking forward to it. And they're the sort of things that have come my way now that, that give me that wonderful interest again. Well, I'm going to come back and ask you a little bit about your, your plans in the imminent future because I know there's, there's quite a bit going on for you. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about your advice, and we touched on it slightly earlier, but your advice for young guys getting into magic. I have a big thing about YouTube magicians and people learning from people that aren't qualified to teach them in the first place. For any young guy, 15, 16-year-old who's sees Keith Barry on TV or has seen birthday party magicians at birthday parties or comes across magic, gets interested in magic, what would your advice for them be? Advice for me to get well grounded in the basis of magic, first of all, because too many people nowadays in this this modern um, sort of I want to be tomorrow instant magicians, it doesn't work like that. They have this idea that all they have to do is learn a couple of small tricks and be on television and they're going to be stars. And it's, it doesn't work like that. You know that and I know that and any working magician knows that. But kids come into things nowadays with an entirely different idea of what show business is all about. And I get a lot of kids ringing me saying, you know, I want to be on television, I want to go and do a show. You say, well, what experience do you have? And they have no experience outside of showing a few of their friends a few tricks. But they think that that's what happens. I mean, maybe it was always like that, only in a different scale, but I think more so nowadays with programmes like The X Factor, you know, and um, I Want to Be kind of programmes which just let them astray. So, as I said earlier, kids' magic is great. Get into kids' magic, get to understand kids, get to understand what a show is, a start, a middle and an end, um, and graduate and work your way up from the bottom up. Too many people now want to start halfway up and, mm. uh, and think they're going to keep going but they have to slide back down first before they do and there's only so much work out there I think as well particularly excuse me particularly at the moment I mean there's a lot, I see a lot of the young guys and they want to be out on gigs straight away having learned one or two tricks and the reality of it is there's hardly the work for the professionals at the moment yeah well the progress my particular progress started off as I said doing charity shows fortunate enough to meet uh, an act who thought I was worthy enough to work with them. But after that then I still had to go back and find my own way around, which is slightly different. It's great when somebody comes along and hands you it on a plate and brings you off and touring and stuff like that. But you have to start at the bottom. You do the charity shows and after a while when you have some experience and you understand what's going on, you can start charging people money. I mean, guys now learn a couple of tricks and they, they want to go out and charge professional fees and do professional shows. They don't do professional shows. Um, they do more harm to the business than good for the business because why is it that if a bad magician appears on an event, they don't ever want to use a magician again? If they book a bad band, they book a different band. And this seems to be a thing that's gone through life in, you know, in recent years particularly anyway. Yeah, I suppose the answer to that is, is too many bad magicians putting themselves out there as good magicians. And the, the sad fact, as I've said to people on the phone, is anybody with any technical knowledge or with enough money can give someone money and build them a website that can make them out to be the best in the world. And it, 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 the internet has opened up a whole new can of worms in that regard, in that the word of mouth aspect is oftentimes gone yeah. from people booking shows. I, I, I mean, I don't get into any sort of names here, not even in the magic business, but when I was uh, starting out in the magic business, there was a young man who was a singer um, in my area who had a friend who worked for the local newspapers. And every week 
there were articles in the paper about him going off and doing this and going to America and recording contracts and everything else. The guy never got outside his own bedroom. And But the nation of, of the locality where I live believed that this guy was, was the next Elvis Presley. And then eventually he turned up on a show one night, in a charity show, and he was actually dread, couldn't sing at all. And this, unfortunately, is what's happening with magic at the moment. As you say, internet magicians building websites, having friends who take fashion, you know, really artistic photographs, and they put up a whole lot of blurb about themselves, none of it true. Um, and they look very bookable. But if anybody books them, then they get the real deal, which is never anything like what the website describes. You know and I know that um, experience counts for so much in this business. And guys who are claiming to be professional magicians through their websites have absolutely no experience of anything to do with magic, corporate-wise or otherwise. And they think that they can fool people. Because they fool them with a website, they think they'll fool them in reality. And unfortunately, they don't. And as you and I know, um, this country is very small. You very quickly find out the guys who are out there and dying on their backsides because they have no idea how to deal with it. On another tangent, I want to, uh, you know, as well as working for the lay public, you work quite a bit for magicians and over the years have devised and published a lot of your own routines and, and you've done DVDs. Something I've always been interested in, I'm not particularly creative, I'm quite good at taking someone else's material that I've seen on a DVD and putting my own personality into it, but I wouldn't be a, a massive creator of tricks and I have never pretended to be. Whereas you do create tricks an awful lot yourself. How do you get ideas about how, you know, you, I mean, the classic example is your Irish three-card trick, hmm. which, as you told me yesterday on the phone, is taking you around the world, really, um, and open doors that would not have otherwise been open to you. So how do you sit there one day and go, OK, I have an idea for this. Here's what, now, I know you're a particular fan of the Elms, we can't, but out, <laughs> outside of that, I mean, you've, you've, you've some great stuff you've published and put out on the market. Yeah, well, I, I talked about the Emsley Count to begin with. It was my good friend Joe Hoey who taught me the Emsley Count, and it changed my life uh, because I, I'm not a technical magician by any means. Um, yes, I do a bird act. Uh, that's about as technical as I get. Everything else after that is very straightforward and easy to do. And that's the kind of magic that I sell to, um, to other magicians and the kind of stuff I lecture on. is very easy to do magic. It's quite within the capabilities of anybody. All you have to do is learn how to present it. But the Irish three-card trick came about, I read an article in um, a Genie magazine written by Tony Griffiths, and I think he called the routine my card or your card or something, and it was just a combination of moves and cards, you know, appearing and not being where they were supposed to be and stuff. And I thought, God, if I change that now and, and, you know, did an Irish version of that using shamrocks and leprechauns and things, that it might actually work. I contacted Tony and I asked him about it and he gave me permission to market my effect which I always think is very important. Contact the originators, get their permission, and, and then do it with an open heart. There's nothing worse than, than nicking something from somebody and then it comes up to bite you in the backside later. As we all know at this moment in time, and we won't get into this. No, we better not. Um, because uh, they're just at the moment, there's so much stuff being nicked by other people. This is just post-FISM 2009, we should say. Yes, probably. And, um, you know, there's enough on the forums for people to, to read about it. But again, this is nothing new. Stuff has been nicked and time and time again but 
don't nick stuff ask for permission to use it and uh, if you get the permission then you can do it with an open hand and like with the Irish three card trick Tony Griffiths kindly gave me the permission to do it and it's been great I've sold untold hundreds of these things um, and uh, Kmart Magic in the UK when Morley was uh, running the business it was his biggest selling close up trick ever uh, which is great to think that some little Irish guy uh, you know, would kind of come up with that but anyway, the, the inventiveness of magic, I stand on the shoulders of giants as well. I find other people's routines and I I look at them and I tweak them and move them and change them. And I often marry routines together, which is a dangerous thing to do if you haven't the experience or the knowledge. Because sometimes people think they're marrying something together when in actual fact they're just killing both routines. Yeah. Um, so the marriage of a routine um, really has to be taking the bad points of one routine uh, away and putting in the good points of another routine mm. to give you what I call the perfect routine. Um, it's either eliminating slights or eliminating apparatus or eliminating something. I, I do believe in the KISS principle as well, which is to keep it simple, stupid, you know, because um, overcomplicated routines don't sit well with lay people. Mm. I mean, magicians will sit and watch a guy doing 27 variations of finding four aces, but don't think any layperson wants to sit and watch that. They don't. Um, you've recently as well published, or well, not published, but put out a DVD through Practical Magic in the UK on entertaining older children, which, I mean, you're the only magician really here that, well, not the only, but certainly the eminent magician here for, for kids of 10 and over. Um, to handle birthday parties which are a totally different ball game to handling you know under nines um, as a testament by the DVD how did that come about? It came about obviously from the reason that Jeremy was talking to me one day in the subject of uh, Terry Herbert's DVD which was entertaining the under fives and I just happened to say to him well you know one of the marketplaces that I have developed over the years is entertaining the over tens and he thought this was a great idea and asked me would I do a DVD on it. Um, a couple of criticisms I've had, and very few criticisms I have to say, but there have been a couple about the audience that we had. They probably weren't as old uh, as I would have liked. They probably ranged 9, 10, 11. Um, it was in a school and people felt, well, it was very easy to entertain children in a school because, well, they were going to sit there and behave themselves. Um, a lot of it actually is down to the fact that I have a lot of experience of doing this kind of work mm. and those children could have been potentially as awkward or as difficult as they wanted to be it was nothing the teachers had no um, sort of control over them I remember actually when Quentin Reynolds put out his through um, Mirietta put out his Five Minutes with a Pocket Hanky DVD mm. and he recorded that in a school in Dublin mm. and there were similar posts on message boards saying oh well am I town or my you know over mm. here in America kids wouldn't say quiet like that you yeah. know for me and like you're just saying I, I don't think it was for you I think it's you know I don't think it's a general or I don't think it's a, a continental problem that the kids won't see it if they're American kids or Australian kids they won't see it easy I think it's the performer and, and Quentin was just a top-notch performer yeah very and much likewise same. with yourself I yeah think, you know? as I said you know when I, the explanation part of the DVD doesn't really deal with the tricks because the tricks are all dealer items with just variations of how I performed them and stuff the important part of it and it's probably the bit that a lot of people don't even bother to look at because they just want the tricks is about the control and how you would attack, uh, and I don't mean attack in, in that sense, but how you 
your mindset your mindset about entertaining that age group of children is so important that you have to go in with a certain amount of authority you have to go in with um, with a control over this audience and you have to entertain them with stuff that they're going to be interested in you know so it's it's a it's a big subject to deal with but uh, that's how that actually came about but that was the main criticism that people had was that the audience I was dealing with was so well behaved and uh, that that was what it's like in the real world but that's what it was like in the real world with my shows well, Pat, I want to ask you a little bit about what's upcoming for you. We mentioned earlier you have uh, a busy couple of weeks ahead of you or a month ahead of you. Yeah, I'm heading to Australia on Monday and uh, for the convention out there. Sean Taylor asked me a couple of years ago if I'd come and do it and I wasn't free to do it then. And uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, he makes you work when you go out, which is great. I'm doing two public performances uh, in the theatre also uh, lecture two workshops and a close-up show as well so it's a packed weekend i'm looking forward to it how long are you over for all together well actually two weeks because i've decided to go that distance um well it's two days traveling to get there in the first place in a day of rest so there's three days gone um and then and myself and david regal are heading off to the blue mountain apparently on thursday for a, a day of Very nice. uh, of uh, getting to know each other and having a bit of fun and then we start on Friday with the shows and um, Saturday and Sunday. And then taking a few days afterwards to catch up with a few people who I know in Australia and, um, and Sean and Diane, who um, are lovely people, and I'm going to do the town with them. And Sean is then coming over to Southport for he's the to... IBM in England? Yeah, he's on the gala show there doing his um, mental routine. He's written a, a book on mentalism, uh, which um, has been very well received. And uh, so he's appearing at... at um, at Southport so I'll get to see him again when and he's you're over you're on the fringe in Southport I'm on the fringe yes I've, I've, I've downgraded to the fringe um, I, I'm glad to see the fringe is back Faye Presto has been uh, working hard with the fringe over the years and you know, it hasn't been easy for her and she's always put the money up herself but I think she's not say she's getting a lot of financial support but it has now become part of the convention which is great because it really deserves to be it's fun. I mean, you've no idea who's going to turn up on it because um, some of the, the best acts in the world have appeared on Faye Presto's Fringes um, totally um, doing stuff that you wouldn't expect them to do. I love the Fringe. I'll, I'll have to go somewhere. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's in, in between Australia, um, meeting Sean Taylor in Australia and meeting Sean Taylor in, in Southport for the IBM, you have um, a big one-man show coming up in the Mill Theatre in Dundrum. On the sixth of September, yeah, Sunday the sixth of September. Yeah, it's um, I, because I've decided now to go back on the road myself, and this is a preview of the show. It has extra bits in from the old show I used to do, some different illusions, and um, I've changed some of my own uh, stand-up cabaret material, and um, I will be putting two girls on the night, which is great. So the show is really taken off. A menage a trois. A menage a trois, example. My French was never brilliant. <laughs> um, so, uh, because I need to get it out and get it, get it up and running, and uh, I have some arts festivals to do later in the year, and I'm looking at um, a little bit more touring later in the year, and then, of course, next year is what I'd like to do a bit more of. I mean, I've been doing my own show for, for many years, uh, but in recent years I was busy doing other things, and, um, and I suppose I didn't need to do it, uh, but I'm looking forward to getting back on the road again. 
So that's on the 6th of September. It's about a two-hour show? A two-hour show, yeah, with an interval. Two-hour show in the Mill Theatre in Dundrum, which, for those who don't know, is a, is a beautiful new theatre uh, right beside the Dundrum Shopping Centre. You can find out more information about Pat's show on irishmagicnews.com or you can book tickets directly with the theatre at the mill, um, www.milltheatre.com, all one word, and, and search through the site, and you can book tickets directly. I think tickets are €18 Euro and €15 Euro with concessions. That's right, and it's called Rabbits, Hats and Big Boxes. Very good. Because I, the, somebody said to me, why did you call it that? And I said, well, it's what a magic show is. Um, I don't know why in recent years everybody seems to want to knock the whole traditional magic type show it's all oh I want to be a mind reader and hypnotism now and you know they say no anybody who pushing around big boxes but audiences want to see big boxes they love illusions and uh, they love stand up comedy magic so um, I've decided as a slight um, I suppose this is what it is and we can't pretend it's anything else it's magic hats and big boxes rabbits rabbits hats and big boxes very good well Pat um all we can do is wish you continued success in your career and on behalf of the magic community in Ireland you have been at the forefront and the pioneer and certainly Ireland's most successful all around magical entertainer um, it's a pleasure to have you on and on behalf of the of the community as I say thanks for all the groundwork and uh, and good luck with, with everything in the future well thank you um, it's uh, it's nice to have had this opportunity to have a chat I um, will also get a plug in the fact that I'm going to Belgium a little bit later after that. Oh, we haven't even finished. You're off to Belgium. Yeah, Things to are Belgium. getting busier yes, for Mr. Yeah. Fong. Yeah. Um, when I get back from um, Australia, I do the show in the mill and then I go to Belgium to do the um, Kid Salabim convention there, which is uh, with uh, Quentin Reynolds and uh, Jeremy LePedrin from Practical Magic. So it's... Um, Another interesting. And by the time you get back from that, we'll be we'll be talking October, November time, heading into into the Christmas run. Into the Christmas run, yeah. Our fingers crossed, everything will be busy well, again. Hopefully, hopefully. Will. And if people want to find out more about you, your own website, um, it's www.patfallonmagic.com. And they can contact you through there. And Pat also has a, a small dealership with his own products available. Um, they're not online yet, as far as I know. Is that correct? No, they're not. I, I tend to, just to do dealing at conventions where I appear, really, rather than anything else. And I sell a little bit of stuff here for local magicians. But um, it, again, it's something which is on the long finger that I would like to have, you know, my own little site selling my own stuff. I'm not into getting into general dealership. It's just too many people out there doing it anyway. Yeah. And uh, I think the, the way to go is just to deal with my own exclusive material. Uh, so that's, um, that's your future future project well keep an eye on irishmagicnews.com for that and further developments with the career of Pat Fallon Pat once again thanks a million been a pleasure friend. well it's my pleasure to welcome uh, both Tony Yassini from the International Magic Society and Ireland's most recent recipient of the Merlin Award Mr Pat Fallon Pat congratulations thank you very much Brendan um, I, I haven't sort of got over the shock yet it's um it's all kind of happened, a bit of a whirlwind thing, and uh, it's, it's wonderful. You've literally just come straight from the TV3 studios, yeah. where it was presented live yes. on, on Ireland AM. Uh, you must have been very proud. I was indeed. Um, as I said, it wasn't something I was expecting this morning. I knew something was going on, but I wasn't really sure. Um, so I, I probably looked like a rabbit in the headlights on TV, because it was um, very unexpected. Well, we hope to find the footage uh, on YouTube or, or there, thereabouts and, and post it along with this interview. I'm also joined here by Tony Hassini from the International Magic Society. And, Tony, it's uh, lovely to have you in Ireland. Um, 
first of all, can you explain a little bit about the history of the award and maybe mention some of the past recipients and also uh, how you came to find out about Pat and what merits his, his award? Well, okay. Um, I knew Pat Fallon uh, from his reputation. I didn't have the pleasure of meeting him until just uh, recently. Uh, and this is long overdue for Pat Fallon. He's very talented. Uh, and so it was a pleasure and honor for me to present the prestigious Merlin Award to Pat. Uh, and it so happened we were able to do it uh, on television. Um, <clears throat> as far as the, uh, the Merlin Award, it goes back um, till uh, we started the Merlin Award in 1968. Uh, it was uh, commissioned to a bunch of art students throughout the United States. Uh, about a hundred art students, and um, the winner was a young lady from New York University uh, by the name of Carol Michel. She created the first Merlin Award. Uh, and uh, uh, some of the people that you recognize will be uh, Blackstone, uh, Doug Hunting, um, uh, Siegfried and Roy, and David Copperfield, Penn and Teller. Uh, uh, from England, um, Daniels, um, Paul Daniels in, in, uh, from France will be um, uh, Tabari, Italy, mm -hmm. uh, Silvan, and the you know, list goes on. So we have very prestigious lists. It really is for the for the top people from the varying different countries. It really is a, an award we, of eminence. We have been, uh, you know, really aiming. We've been giving out the award with an eyedropper. To, keep, to retain the value of the award. Sure. Uh, and we were criticized. We were criticized that we we're only presenting the award to top names. And we uh, done a lot of soul searching about that. And we decided to go and, and search uh, for those guys who are extremely talented and possibly no one ever heard of them. Sure. And that, that's what we're doing now. We're really going out and um, uh, searching for those talented people. So if someone, they think they deserve the award, what they should do, um, send us a, a DVD or a video of their act. Um, best to send the act. You know, if they send us a promotional DVD, it's fine. We'll get to see what they're about. We might want to see more of it. And the it goes before the board of directors. They vote on it. And then if you win it, it's a, it's a recognition award. Sure. We present it to you either at our banquet dinner or I will make the chip to, uh, to your stage to present it to you, which Pat will be uh, officially giving the award during his show on Sunday. That's coming up on Sunday night in the, Sunday night. In the Mill Theatre in Dundrum. Yeah. For any local people who may be listening to this, there are a couple of tickets still available. Um, yeah, probably after this morning there will be very few, I would say. Um, it, it's been selling well and steady, so um, we would hope that we have a complete sellout on Sunday. Excellent. Well, we just wanted a brief word, Pat, um, just to say, on behalf of I mean, messages are flooding into my email inbox already to congratulate you from varying guys who saw it on TV this morning. So, from the whole community here, it's much deserved, long overdue, as Tony says, and um, a heartfelt congratulations to you. Well, thank you very much. And Tony, thanks for being here. Lovely to meet you. Thank as well. you. Pleased to meet you. have been listening to irishmagicnews.com in conversation with Tony Hassini and Pat Fallon to commemorate Pat's receiving of the Merlin Award. 
our heartfelt congratulations go to Pat. It's well deserved and on behalf of the entire community, Pat, congratulations. You have been listening to irishmagicnews.com in conversation with Pat Fallon. Our conversation with Pat has been made possible by two recent donations we received from Kerry Scora and Joe O'Donnell. Thank you for the help, guys. All help is much appreciated, let me tell you. If you or your society or organisation would like to make a donation and become a leprechaun, you can do so by clicking the appropriate buttons on irishmagicnews.com. Please send us emails if you're enjoying what you're, you're hearing and viewing on irishmagicnews.com. Drop us a mail through the site and let us know. And remember, until the next time we talk, for all the latest information goings on on magic and magicians in Ireland, please check out irishmagicnews.com. Pat Fallon will be one of the featured artists on night two of the IBM Southport Fringe Festival. The IBM British Ring Convention takes place this September 23rd through to the 27th in Southport. You can find out all the information about the British Ring Convention either on our site or by going to www.britishring.org.uk and you can find out all the information about this convention and other conventions on our website www.magicconventionguide.com. Dot com.